This morning, we're going to talk about one of the spiritual disciplines that many of us haven't really engaged in at a meaningful level. I'm talking about fasting. Now, some of you are going, yeah, I fast. I do intermittent fasting to try and keep my waistline down or whatever. This is very, very different. Fasting, according to the Bible, is something that we do as a way of communing with God. It's the withholding of food for spiritual purposes. So if you're like me, and maybe right now you're having a hard time keeping your mind and your heart focused in the right spot, we're going to be talking about fasting, and you might not on the surface see what these two things have to do with each other right away. But let me encourage you to hang with me and understand how fasting might be just the perfect place for us to go during times like the one that we're in. We live in a world where food is a really big deal. We love food. Uh, McDonald's was not built on fasting. Uh, the biggest companies in our country, many of them are attached to food. And God is no enemy of food. He loves food. He provides daily bread for us. The heaven, when it's spoken of, the kingdom of God, they're spoken of with banquets and feasting and, and celebration. So God is not anti-food. But fasting does something very, very unique for us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open to Matthew chapter 6. As you do, I want you to think about all the different ways that we often use food to show affection for one another, hospitality for one another. We might say, hey, can I take you to dinner? Young men and young women, when they're courting each other, it might be, hey, let's do dinner in a movie. Or, hey, can I have you come over to my house for dinner? That's a way of me inviting you in and treating you like a guest. So food is part of our language. It's something that we just love because it's awesome. Am I right? So food is great. We love food. Fasting is the withholding of food, not for dietary purposes, but for spiritual purposes. Now, it might be difficult for us to understand why this is so important, so I want to walk us through a primer on the spiritual discipline of fasting today. My hope is that you'll respond to the invitation at the end to join me in something very special. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. He says, when you fast, notice he says, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who's unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So let me point out just a couple of things there. First of all, notice he assumes we're going to fast. He says to us, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast or if you kind of feel like fasting. There's an assumption. Now, it's not a command to fast. But there's an assumption that we are going to be people who actually fast. And then he goes straight to the topic of motive. He wants us to not do what a lot of people do. And that is to put on a show of it. To not... Uh, make it a, a big affair about us and how righteous we are and, and things like that. Now, Jesus was not around in the time of Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. But if he was, what he's saying, if I can translate what he says there in the Sermon on the Mount to today, he's saying, look, when you do it, you don't need to hashtag it. You don't need to put it out there for people, oh, look at me, I'm fasting, hashtag misery, or anything like that. That this is something that we do that's between us and God, and it's something that really isn't supposed to be morbid and awful. That if we're doing it for the right reasons, we might find ourselves as painful as it can be to the flesh sometimes. 
we will find ourselves drawing in and tapping into a strength that is uncommon, that is hard to find anywhere else. And so if we go about it bragging and we go about trying to make a show of it, we will have received our reward. Fasting is a time of communion with God that is symbolized by and focused on our abstention from food. So again, fasting is the denial of food for spiritual purposes. Now, it's been a subject of much discussion in the church throughout the years. Uh, For example, in his research for his landmark book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster could not find a single book published on the subject of Christian fasting between 1861 and 1954. Nada, zip, nothing published during that era. That's almost 100 years nobody actually wrote a book on this subject of fasting, despite the fact that it turns up over and over and over and over again. I went back through my own list of sermons after having preached for almost 25 years, and I can count the number of sermons I've preached on fasting on one finger. I've preached one sermon on the subject of fasting in my entire preaching career. Now, I've used it, I've talked about it, I've done it myself personally, but we really, I think, have some room to grow in this area and and talking about it again and doing it more frequently and diving in deeper to see how God wants to reach through into our hearts and how to reform us and shape us into the likeness of His Son. Now, there are a couple of reasons, I think, that we stopped talking about fasting uh, altogether. One was is kind of historical in nature. If you go back to the Middle Ages, the, uh, the ascetics really got into this binding law on people. You need to be fasting a lot in very extreme measures and in very forced ways. And there was a rebellion against that. It came, became associated with legalism and law, which is really a shame. So while Jesus assumes that we will be people who fast, the law kills and the Spirit gives life. And so what ended up happening is people began to push back against that by rebelling against fasting itself, when in reality it was making a law of fasting that really became the issue. Uh, Another one is kind of propaganda today and in more recent times that leads us to believe that if we don't have three regular large meals in a day, plus some snacks in between, that we may famish out and just pass out from uh, malnourishment and things like that. So people might say things like, I hear fasting is dangerous for your health, or it could destroy healthy body tissue. But in fact, while we can't go without air or water uh, for very long, we can go without food for quite a long time, and it's often got a lot of health benefits to do so, even though, let me be clear here, that is not why we do it. That's not what fasting is. It's not a diet plan. It's spiritual. It's about communion with God. It's about us learning some of the most important lessons that, there, that can be learned in the spiritual realm and to embrace those and to drink deeply from the wellsprings of God and learning what it means that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, biblically, the list of people who participate in fasting is basically a Hall of Fame list. You've got Moses and David and Elijah and Esther and Daniel. Uh, You've got Anna the prophetess and Paul the apostle and Jesus himself. Many of the most significant Christians throughout history have witnessed to its importance. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, and that, that list is long. But even if people hadn't recognized its importance, it's still something that Jesus wants us to do. It's something that he role models for us in his life and ministry. Many of the most significant Christians have seen it as well. Fasting isn't exclusively Christian either, even though what we're talking about today is. 
Every major world religion recognizes the importance of fasting for a particular set of reasons. Now, there are several things that fasting does in our hearts, and I want to lay out just a couple for you this morning. First of all, fasting reveals to us what controls us. Fasting reveals what controls us. Now, this is something that's beautiful for us to grab hold of, something that um, allows us to sit there with God in a place of need and actually try to draw out those things that we have appetites for. So it's funny how sometimes if you're fasting for any length of time, it's not just the cry for food that starts to well up. There are other things that start coming to the surface as well. Psalm 69.10 points out, uh, David says, I humbled my soul with fasting. I love that. I humbled my soul with fasting. But like, for instance, if pride controls us, it's going to be revealed almost immediately. And I have to imagine that Again, when David says, I humbled my soul with fasting, that that's something he recognized was taking place in his own life. Uh, you might, it might be anger or bitterness or jealousy or strife or fear. If they are inside of us, we will notice them start to come up when we are fasting. Now, at first, we might say, okay, I'm just cranky because I'm hungry, for instance. Uh, we all know what hangry means, right? We are hungry, and we are angry, and we put them together, okay? So in the realm of fasting, we just assume, okay, well, the reason I'm mad is because I'm hungry. So we'll rationalize that, but then eventually we're going to realize that we're angry because the spirit of anger is in us. And what hunger does is it puts us in a place of dependency where that begins to rise to the surface. And so we can rejoice in that. We can see that come about in our, in our hearts and our lives, and we can recognize it, and we can call on the power of God to deal with it. We can rejoice in that new knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. A theologian by the name of Dallas Willard wrote, he said, persons that are well used to fasting as a systematic practice will have a clear and constant sense of their resources in God, and that will help them endure deprivations of all kinds even to the point of coping with them easily and cheerfully. Thomas Akempis wrote, he said, Refrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. What ends up happening over time is that as we learn to tame our appetite for food, we learn to tame a lot of other appetites as well. In the midst of all our needs and our wants, Willard goes on to write, he says, we experience the contentment of the child that has been weaned from its mother's breast, Psalm 131.2, and that godliness with contentment is great gain, 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Augustine recognized this. He, had a, um, tor he was tortured by lust, and he used to talk about how his mind was occupied with what he called bands of dancing girls. And he was so frustrated with his inability to control his lust that he began to use fasting as a way to work on that part of his character. So Augustine eventually began these lengthy fasts, and what he was saying to God and to himself was, I'm going to, by faith, believe that if I'm able to control my most fundamental impulse of the flesh, which is to eat, then I will not have to surrender myself to that appetite either. Next, fasting reveals what sustains us. It reminds us that we are sustained by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That it's not food that sustains us, that it's actually God who sustains us. It's God who holds all things together. 
And so it's when we're in that experience of fasting that we're not so much abstaining from food. What we're trying to do is actually learn to feast on the word of God. Fasting is feasting. It's just a different kind of feasting than we're used to. So when the disciples brought lunch to Jesus, assuming that he would be starving, for instance, you may remember this, he says, I have food to eat which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And that's not just a metaphor. It's not just a Jesus juke by Jesus. If he can do that, I guess it's just a juke if he does it. I guess. Well, so he didn't do that either. Okay, He's saying something so profound if we can just get it. That if we are able to feast on the word of God, that there's food available to us that we can find nowhere else. In Matthew chapter 6, one of the reasons that Jesus tells us not to look like we're miserable is because we aren't miserable when we do it. So we don't need to act like a hypochondriac and pretend we're miserable when we're not, when we're walking strong in the spirit. And that's where fasting takes us. In point of fact, we're not miserable because we're feeding on God. And just like the Israelites who were sustained in the, in the wilderness by manna, by the daily bread that God gave them, we are sustained by the word of God. Next, fasting makes us strong in weakness. I remember Randy Harris, who was my guest on the podcast this past week, giving me an insight into the temptation of Jesus that I hadn't really considered before. You may remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness, and it says that he went into the wilderness, the Spirit led him there to be tempted by the devil. And that when he's out there, it says after 40 days of fasting, in a great understatement, I'm sure it says he was hungry. So then Satan comes out and hurls a series of temptations at Jesus, one of those is to make stones become bread. Now, if you haven't eaten in 40 days, that could be a major, major temptation. But Jesus resists by quoting back to him that text. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, the assumption we make is that Jesus, boy, Satan really roughed him up because Jesus was at his weakest because he hadn't eaten in 40 days. Randy Harris made an insight in a sermon that he preached once that I thought was good. He goes, we always assume that he was at his weakest, when in reality he was probably at his strongest because he had been fasting and was strong in the spirit. So at that moment in time, though his body probably was hungry, spiritually speaking, he had been feasting on the word of God for 40 straight days, which is why he doesn't give in to that particular temptation. Now, our faith... Or, you know, and, and carries us through those kinds of seasons. And fasting builds that faith by helping us understand that we don't have to have food every minute of every day, food on tap, like we have it here in America, in order for us to be sustained. So, while Christ was weak in the body, for instance, during his temptation, and we may feel that way, we are also strong in the spirit, which is why we're sometimes better able to resist temptation during seasons of fasting than the other. We always think that physical weakness means spiritual weakness, but that's an admission really of how attached to comfort we are. So when I'm that attached to my physical comfort, I am really a slave to my own appetites. Fasting helps break that down to where I'm not so uh, attached to my comfort at every moment of every day. I don't find myself asking, where is a God if the thermostat rises to 73 degrees instead of 72? You know, there is a certain 
if you will, spiritual toughness that fasting engenders, not by making us strong physically, but actually by making us weak, by making God's grace sufficient for us. The Apostle Paul would pray constantly to God that he would remove his thorn in the flesh. He says, I begged God all the time to take it away, and he never did. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, he said to me, he is God, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let that soak in. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So it's in the weakness that fasting brings about that actually allows the strength of God to bubble up and to strengthen us. That God's grace is made perfect in weakness. It's, it's sufficient for us. Macrina Whitaker gives us insight into a few of the spiritual dimensions of fasting. For her, she writes this. She says, fasting makes me vulnerable and reminds me of my frailty. It reminds me to remember that if I'm not fed, I will die. Standing before God hungry, I suddenly know who I am. I am one who is poor, called to be rich in a way that the world does not understand. I am one who is empty, called to be filled with the fullness of God. I am one who is hungry, called to taste all the goodness that can be mine in Christ. Now, biblically, there are a number of different kinds of fasts. In the Bible, the norm for fasting is for it to be private, between a person and God. But there are some occasions where fasts are communal. The only required fast that we really see anywhere in the Bible is on the Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27, where people are supposed to do deep reflection on their sin. And this is prior to Christ when sins were atoned for on that unique day, particularly. A day of sorrow and affliction for sins. But in Scripture, there are four listed right here, normal, partial, absolute, and group. I want to walk through them very quickly. Uh, the norm is kind of the individual fast, abstaining from food, but not water. Okay, so there's water going, uh, and, and so um, an example of this might be the 40-day fast of Jesus that I just alerted to, uh, alluded to earlier, where it says that he ate nothing, but toward the end of the fast, he was hungry. Satan tempts him to eat, but not to drink, which makes you think, okay, he was drinking water that whole time. So it's reasonable to assume that he was fasting from food. The partial fast, you can see an example of this in Daniel chapter 10. So for a three-week period, Daniel says, I didn't eat meat. Uh, I didn't drink any wine. Uh, he doesn't anoint himself at all. So his normal fast, though, throughout the book of Daniel, he's typically on the normal side of things, but he also engages in what you might call partial fasting. So some people will even do this with things that aren't food-related. It might be technology-related, uh, people giving up stuff for Lent, you know, that, that kind of a thing. The idea there is partial fast, okay? Uh, after that, you have absolute fast. This is abstaining from both food and water. So you need to be careful with this one. It's highly exceptional. There are a couple of examples in the Bible that really do jump out. Uh, and they both, um, again, I want to emphasize, this is pretty exceptional. So in the book of Esther, before she's prepared to go to the king on behalf of the Israelites and point out uh, Haman's evil plan to exterminate the Jews, she asks the people to engage with her in complete Fasting, absolute fasting across the board, food and water. So they do that for three days. The Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, when he's 
converted after that, when he's really trying to seek the will of the Lord, it says that he fasts for three days. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, verse 9. Now, in the case of Esther, that's also, by the way, a group fast. That's the fourth category here. That group fast, this can be a wonderful, powerful experience, provided that there are prepared people in heart that are ready to do it together and are of one mind in such matters. So let me take you back to Esther. And you may remember there is a plot out to exterminate the Jews. And Esther has been asked to go to the king uninvited, which could have meant her death. And so she's risking her life in order to do this and really wants the favor of the king and wants God's favor in the situation. So here's what's written in Esther 4.16. Esther says this. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She knows it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't stop her from asking for God's intervention. And so she and the people together go to God and and beg him by abstaining from food and water during those three days. So Esther does it too. She's not taking her B vitamin supplements and doing all the kinds of things that we do to try and make ourselves strong. Because in her mind, you don't get strong by eating food. You get strong by being weak. And that is a biblical concept that you see throughout the scriptures. Now, I want to emphasize something I said at the very beginning. God is not against food. This is not a a food bashing kind of a thing. The Bible is full of times where God provides lavish food and celebration and things for people. But there's a time for fasting and a time for feasting. And we need to make sure that sometimes we understand that fasting is feasting of another kind. Serious problems, for instance, in churches or other groups or countries can be dealt with. Relationships can be healed through unified group prayer and fasting. When a sufficient number of people rightly understand what's involved, national calls to prayer and fasting also can have amazing results. There's an old story of the king of Britain who called for a day of solemn prayer and fasting because there was a threat of invasion by the French in 1756. February 6th, John Wesley records this in his journal. He says, The fast day was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will be yet a lengthening of our tranquility. And then in a footnote he wrote, Humility was turned into national rejoicing, for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. So he tells this story of the whole nation of Great Britain getting together in every church, in every place, and praying and fasting together. Biblical kings called for this when the nation was under attack and in need of God's guidance. Here's one from the king Jehoshaphat. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 2 to 4. You can read it on the screen here. It says, messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They are already at Hazazon Tamar. This was another name for Engedi. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news and he begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. And so they go in and they fast and they pray. 
Okay, so how do I do this if I'm interested? How do I do this? I'm just going to give you a very brief little primer on how to do it, okay? Stop eating. That's one. But before you do that, okay, there's a spiritual preparation that needs to go into this. Begin with 24 hours. The people who fast a lot recommend lunch to lunch. So eat your lunch and don't eat again until lunch the next day. For 24 hours, allow yourself some juices instead of just water for the first time you're doing it. Now, after you do that a couple of times, now you're really only missing two meals. So it's not the end of the world. Most of us have more to spare than that. But you're going to get hungry. But it's not a real hunger. Okay, our stomachs have been trained through years of conditioning to give signals of hunger at certain hours. And so Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, likens it, the stomach, to a spoiled child. And a spoiled child doesn't need indulgence, it needs discipline. Martin Luther says, the flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully. It's a very fancy way of saying it just, your flesh just cries out to be satiated and satisfied at every turn. But as Foster says, it's really just a spoiled child that needs discipline, not satiation. So if you get hungry, take a sip of water. And then a lot of the mystics and uh, spiritual fathers and mothers in the past have said, just take every hunger pain as a call to prayer. So every time you feel hungry, take a sip of water and pray. Take a sip of water and pray. So you can do that from there. If you want to advance, you can go to 36 hours, uh, water only, no juice. And then from there, there are some more extended ones, as I alluded to Augustine uh, before and how he hid, um, used fasting to help discipline his flesh. Sometimes these are, are things, special times where you're struggling with particular sin in your life. Uh, I have gone alongside some brothers who are going through some particularly difficult sins similar to Augustine's and done seven-day fasts with them. And that really is an adventure of the spirit. It, you feel extremely weak. Uh, days one and two are, are, are tough, but okay. Days three and four are really, really difficult. And you feel broken down and you feel weak. And that's where you really start wrestling with God. Stuff starts coming to the surface. By the time that you get to day five, five and a half, six in there, what's interesting is you really do begin to feel stronger. I know physically stronger. You can just feel your body has gotten rid of stuff that it needed to get rid of and you are feeling healthy and you're feeling strong to the point that you kind of feel like maybe you can go another week. You really do feel that way. And so there's some process, some spiritual process that goes on during the process of fasting where we learn, you know what, I'm, I'm hungry, but I didn't obey my flesh. Uh, I'm hungry and I'm deepening my walk with God through prayer as I'm doing this. And so I want you to consider doing something with me. We're living in very, very turbulent, crazy times. And so just like Esther and Jehoshaphat and others, I would like to invite you to fast with me. Now, you know we love food at NBC. We actually have what I call the ministry of eating, which is going to local businesses and supporting one of them a week. And we're going to do that because it's important that we continue to support our neighbors in that way. But we're going to feast on Thursday of this coming week. We're going to fast from lunch on Monday. I'm inviting you. This is not a legalistic thing, okay? If you would like to, Monday lunch to Tuesday lunch. And join me in praying for and fasting for the division in our country, the disease that's rampant in all the world, and anything else 
that you think might draw you closer to God. And I want to encourage you, don't just make it about intercession. It's important that you yourself have some time to reflect on your own weakness, on the things that rise up as you're doing this in your own life. So sometimes it could be a spirit of anger or frustration or impatience or vengeance or something, right? Give that the space to happen, 24 hours. If you get hungry, have a sip of water and go to God in prayer. Have a sip of water, go to God in prayer. You get hungry again, sip of water, go to God in prayer. And as we fast, again, those two things, that God would surface what controls us, he would fill us with what sustains us, and that he would intervene in a mighty way in what's going on in our city and our country and the divisions that continue to inflame and to bind us. And my hope is that just as Jesus went through that time in the wilderness and was tempted and came through in victory, that even though our wilderness, I'll say, is a little shorter by 40 days, 39 days, uh, that God will honor that time and that he'll hear the prayers of his people, that he'll speak into the sacrifices being made, that he'll fill our weakness with his grace and that he will be pleased with what we've done. This time we're going to gather around the table and as we take the bread and the cup today, I want us to be cognizant of a couple of different things. We do this every week at New Vintage Church. We take a piece of bread and a cup of juice or a sip of juice, and we, uh, we reflect on what Jesus has done for us and on his words. Today, we, let's think about these. I am the bread of life, and those who partake of him will never go hungry. And that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in our case, the living word that proceeded from God. Jesus himself, who was God and who dwelt among us, lived a flawless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave after three days and now sits at the right hand of God, that we are sustained by him. So let's be reminded of that now as we gather around the table. Heavenly Father, we realize that we do not live by bread alone. We ask now that you begin the process of filling us with the bread that as we feast on it, we will never go hungry again. And Father, when we take the cup, may we remember the blood of Christ, how it was given to us, Father. May it sustain us now spiritually here in this wilderness we're in. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of fasting and what it teaches us about our weakness, about your greatness, and about how your grace is sufficient for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.